Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Mexico's midterm elections were held on June 6. And although President López Obrador was not on the ballot, the elections were seen as a referendum on his performance. It was the largest midterm election in history, and despite the violence and the attacks on candidates and on the Mexican electoral institution that we saw prior to the election, on that day, 53% of the Mexican electorate, unprecedented for a midterm, came out to vote peacefully. The results, good or bad, were accepted by all parties. No doubt, democracy was a big winner. To help us analyze how will the results of this election will affect the agenda for the next three years and how might that impact U.S. interests that I welcome, former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico and a counsel for White and Case in Mexico City, Ambassador Antonio Garza and Dr. Gabriel Lozano, Chief Economist for JP Morgan in Mexico. Ambassador Garza, headlines around the world highlighted the fact that AMLO no longer appeared invincible and that the losses of his Morena party in the lower house of Congress would prevent it from reaching the two-thirds majority that is necessary for constitutional changes. However, that is not the whole story, and the opposition did not deliver a knockout either. His party, Morena, is still the most popular in Mexico. They did extremely well in the governorships and in many other local elections. What is your analysis? Well, Mariana, I think before we get into the political analysis, you know, who's up, who's down in terms of the uh, political actors in the country, I think that the really big winner was the INE, or the Mexican Electoral Commission. I've had the opportunity to speak with people that uh, voted, people that participated in the process as election observers. And one of the things that they came away from was how well run the election is. And as you know, one of the fundamental pillars of democracy is the ability to conduct elections that uh, people have confidence not only in the process, but respect the outcomes. And in that sense, I think it was very impressive. A second point that I think bears noting is that for a midterm election with 52% participation of the Mexican people, that was one of the highest turnouts since, I, I believe, the mid to late 1990s in Mexico. So that's the good news. Against the backdrop of campaign season that was marred by violence, 38 assassinations is, is uh, very troubling, and it speaks to the security issues in the country. Now, as relates to the actual uh, election and the outcomes, yeah, the focus was on the breadth of the election. The entire lower house would be up. 15 governors' races were out there to be had. And the focus was on whether or not López Obrador would have a qualified majority. And for those listeners that don't know exactly what that means, that's essentially the number necessary to move forward with constitutional amendments. And so while López Obrador did not get the numbers in order to have that qualified majority in the lower house, what he did do 
and his party, Morena, was sweep 11 gubernatorial races. And so now Morena has well over half of the governor's houses in Mexico. Now, so he's lost a qualified majority, but in terms of establishing a national presence, it is those state houses, those governor's houses within from which you can build what I characterize as the plumbing, the uh, the organizational support going into 2024. So I'd say, you know, it's uh, kind of a mixed bag, lost a qualified majority, established a national presence. A couple of things that I thought were interesting was, for example, in Mexico City, where Morena had long had a stronghold. They lost resoundingly. I guess the silver lining there more broadly is the ascendancy of women in elected office in in that city. If you look more closely at it, you might say that some of the losers, in addition to the Morena party, were the political actors that are positioning for 2024. Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard, the former mayor of Mexico City, and Claudia Scheinbaum, the current mayor that is, you know, generally viewed as, as, as strong prospects for 2024. But kind of a mixed bag, but on the balance, I, I'd say uh, not too unlike midterms around the world where the incumbent party tends to lose a little bit. But in this case, I think if you look more closely, Lopez Obrador had a, had, a, had a really a pretty good day for a midterm election. I think it'll be interesting for those that were a bit for those opponents of Lopez Obrador or the opposition, don't read too much into this. The the presidency in Mexico, and certainly given Lopez Obrador's focus on consolidating power and the use of executive order and his capacity to appoint and influence uh, the regulatory bodies in the country, is still going to set the agenda politically. So while I wouldn't say it's necessarily a status quo anti-election, I think directionally in terms of policy, I don't see... Uh, changing uh, too dramatically. Gabriel, Mexican assets have rallied after the midterm elections. How do you read that reaction? Are you comfortable or not with the new equilibrium of power? Yeah, that's a very good point from an economic and financial perspective, because the market was very focused in understanding what wasn't going to be the result at the legislative level. And from that perspective, of course, the market was uh, satisfied by seeing that there's now more division, a good split uh, among all the factions in the, that part of Congress. But I think the market is not looking well into the rest of the elections, as Ambassador Garza mentioned. I think that that is very relevant to keep in mind. The number of gubernatorial seats that Morena has now allows Morena to show that it's consolidating at a, at a different level. And that is going to maintain as an important friction in several levels that will continue to exert pressure on institutions. And uh, for instance, this discussion that is going on right now between the Institute on Elections uh, and at the same time, the discussion that is taking place in terms of the recall referendums and the consultation is going to be important because we, for this year, have one related to assessing former presidents. And next year is going to be the, the, the big assessment on López Obrador. And apparently, well, this discussion is going to extend on other issues related to institutional autonomy on some bodies, central bank as well, and probably we'll talk about that later. But I think that the market needs to pay attention not only to what happened at the lower house level, but also it was discussed what is going on at the level of Mexico City, in which now we have a big split between uh, the opposition alliance and Morena alliance. And that is something that will be uh, closely looked into the next uh, few years. 
Ambassador Gabriel touched upon the dynamics of the legislative process and the need for AMLO to be able to build coalitions to continue to pass his agenda. He also touched upon the recall referendum, which is scheduled for 2022. Just to give our audience a perspective, a recent poll conducted by El Financiero showed that if the referendum had been held on June 6, 49% of Mexicans would have backed AMLO compared to 46% against him. This is quite impressive, considering the pandemic, the economic crisis, the security crisis, the collapse of the Mexico City subway. How do you see these dynamics playing out in the next year? And what are the risks of the referendum? I, I think Gabriel hit on uh, on many very good points. And one of which he touched on is, before I speak to the referendum, is the legislative process. While President Lopez Obrador has not had to do a lot of negotiating necessarily in the first three years because he had the numbers, there are a lot of splinter parties out there. The, the opposition wasn't as cohesive and was not driven by a big idea. They were largely driven in this electoral cycle by their if not opposition, they simply weren't Morena. And that, and that for many voters was enough. And a number of the political parties in Mexico, because I don't want to use the word mercenary, I'll use the word nimble, are very uh, facile in the forming of alliances. And so I think on certain legislative measures, President Lopez Obrador may continue to get his way in terms of building coalitions. Whether he can build a coalition for constitutional reform on some of the big issues, I don't know. But I think on the legislative front, he may continue to have success. Now, the referendum question is one that I don't think many people outside of Mexico have really focused on, and perhaps not even within the country of Mexico, where President López Obrador will essentially put himself on the ballot in 2022, which is a very unusual sort of process. And if you assume a couple of things, that if he is seeing this as a referendum, a mini election of sorts on him, going into 2022, you can expect all the things attendant to campaign. And that can be everything from more spending, rhetorical excess. And, and I don't say that as a criticism. I mean, campaigns are generally marked by rhetorical excess. You can see initiatives in the regulatory bodies, more leverage perhaps over certain individuals and organizations that might seek to oppose him, but you know they're, they're, they're going to be reluctant to do so. So essentially, he's created another campaign cycle by saying that he'll put himself on the ballot for referendum. So I, I think the implications both going into it are interesting. And the risk, if, if you had to pinpoint one, was... How will President Lopez Obrador interpret that referendum? If it's favorable, will he interpret that as a mandate for more? Might he think that that is a mandate for reconsideration of Mexico's longstanding policy of no reelection and no succession uh, of an individual president? Today, I think that unlikely, but certainly I think that's an open question. And so I, I think there's both risk going into it in terms of this kind of off-cycle election and also coming out of it, how will it be interpreted? So it, it, I, I think it'll be very interesting. And, and certainly Gabriel's in a better position than me to speak to what the implications are that in terms of fiscal and spending. And, and you know, if you're going to spend, you got to generate the revenue somewhere. So I think that'll, that, that'll be interesting. And so, Gabriel, I'll, I'll leave that to you. But I think that's, uh, that's certainly an open question. 
Gabriel, if Mexico is going to have a new electoral process, this might affect the federal spending needs. And at the same time, we have a new Congress, we have a new finance minister, we have an economy that stopped attracting investments even before the pandemic, due mainly to the uncertainty on the rules of the game. What are the challenges and where should investors be focused on? Now, there are very important challenges ahead in terms of the short term, the budget to be discussed in September, which is expected to include a discussion on the fiscal issues. I don't want to say a fiscal reform, but it looks very complicated right now to think that there is going to be a thorough fiscal reform when we have several changes, not only the composition of the lower chamber, in which one of the key members from Morena was not re-elected in the lower chamber. He, he was one of the key members on, on the discussion on, on, on this topic. But at the same time, the fact that we had this transition or this change in the Minister of Finance just before the discussion of the budget is very relevant because usually you have a Minister of Finance that discusses a fiscal reform and then he might go to another part of the cabinet. That's what happened at some point with the other former ministers. But at the same time, what would be the implication for Lopez Obrador in the context of the recall referendum? Is he really going to go in the direction of tightening some bolts on the revenue side, uh, trying to adjust on the in government spending? I mean, it could be a risky game now that he knows that there is an opposition, that he is facing an important challenge from the population that had a huge participation this time around. So I, I think that that is a very relevant point to keep in mind that probably investors will start to keep an eye, a closer eye as we move forward into 2022. But at the same time, if we think about investment, that's an issue that has been a big concern for Mexico even before AMLO arrived. It had to do with the transition in, in, in the political power in the U.S., had to do with USMCA uncertainty. And that is the key word for Mexico, uncertainty, and for all investors around the world. If there is not certainty, you do not invest or you backtrack from important uh, risky projects. No, So I think that is very relevant to keep in mind. So uh, on that regard, what I think is that investment will remain muted. It's going to be relatively stalled, precisely because you need to take into consideration what is going to happen on many levels. So these layers related to the macro front, related to policy, changes, transitions in the, in, in the cabinet, and at the same time, the uncertainty related to the potential extension of the mandate of the president, given what we had recently about the extension of the mandate of the Supreme Court of Justice president, that's something that for investors is not really uh, their cup of tea. No, It's something that is going to be very complicated. Uh, Marianne, Antonia, I think you're, you're right on those points. Ambassador, certainty has been the number one element missing over the past years, affecting investments as well as the opportunities for Mexico to attract supply chains moving into North America. The recent changes in the finance ministry and in Banco de Mexico are not unimportant. How do you see these forces playing out? Were you surprised about the timing of the appointments? Can you tell us a little bit? How do you read? I think Gabriel's absolutely correct in terms of investors looking for certainty. And where there is uncertainty, the risk reward has to be much higher. And I don't think they necessarily see that in Mexico right now. So, and quite frankly, if you look at the last, you know, 18 months or so, or certainly 15 months since the pandemic, Mexico's economy has, has kept its, you know, nose above water, but largely on the strength of exports and remittances, you know, to the tune of over $40 billion coming into the country. And those are things that have less to do with any real movement in the direction of more competitive platform in Mexico, but things that were pretty much existing. And the foreign direct investment has been somewhat level 
where there were projections that it would increase significantly, it's it's been pretty level. And I think going forward, what you'll probably see is long-planned investment around manufacturing and export platforms. You'll probably see a little bit of that. Uh, but I don't know that you'll see people being terribly bullish on it. You know, we had a lot of discussion around nearshoring, ally shoring. Many of these supply chains are stickier than people realize. They're going to look for ways to work around the situations they're in in other markets, uh, particularly if Mexico doesn't provide that certainty in a sense that it's a longer term play. Now, in terms of the appointments themselves, you know, one of the things I think Mexico has has done well for certainly the last, you know, 20, 25 years is there has been a certain sort of whether it was center right or center left, there was a kind of a macroeconomic I don't want to call it orthodoxy, but a consistency around policy that was maintained, I think, in large part because there was not only a perception, but in fact, both the finance ministry and the central bank were somewhat autonomous, certainly more the central bank than the finance ministry, because that's part of the cabinet. But they had that standing in the international marketplace. Now, I think the appointments in and of themselves are both very good. I mean, I think these are both very able and talented uh, individuals. But this is President López Obrador's third finance minister. And in terms of the timing, some would say that's kind of curious. Others might say, well, that's not too unusual after an in, uh, after a midterm to make some changes in the cabinet. But in terms of the timing as it relates to the budget, it's, it's a bit curious. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. The, the independence, certainly not autonomy, but let's just say the independence of the finance minister. And secondly, Arturo Herrera, I think, is, is, is a very talented and able person, but he's not a central banker. And so I think his challenge is both is twofold. One is in maintaining and asserting the independence of the central bank and also establishing the credibility in the international marketplace as a central banker. And so I think I, I think there's there's a, a couple of things to continue to uh, keep an eye on there. Not necessarily any cause for alarm, but I think certainly enough to just kind of keep an eye on. And that's what investors will be doing. Something that I wanted to, to add to, to the discussion is that when Tony mentioned timing, I think the fact that there is a suggestion or the confirmation that Diaz de Leon will be leaving his post, but knowing or letting know all these issues about he will, Herrera will be the next governor, but six months in advance to his formal initiation as a, as a governor, that is really worrying. I mean, why doing so? You have to respect those timelines and, and, and the, the fact that you are sending a message that you basically need to think about who is your, your next governor. It raises a lot of questions, no, in terms of why was, was it done? Was it after the, the, the central bank did not transfer the, the, the operational profit to the central bank? Was the government not happy with the fact that Banxico continues to be relentless in the fight against inflation? So that, that's important for the medium term because for next year, inflation is, needs to be safeguarded, no, in the sense that right now inflation is expected to reach above 5% levels at the end of the year. No? If you have a board that is com comprised by a number of members that are identified as more dovish or closer to growth concerns rather than inflation, especially in the context of a governor that doesn't have a lot of experience as a central banker, it's going to be a very relevant issue. The previous three governors had more or close to 20 years experience in the central bank. 
And uh, Herrera, I mean, he has some experience because he participates in the different uh, monetary policy committees of the central bank without a vote right, of course. But he, and he has he has been there and he understands a little bit. But it, that's very much different to having a 20 plus experience in the central bank. So I just wanted to make that point. Thank you. Absolutely. And and the fact that in the United States, with inflation and interest rates rising, you know, that will certainly impact the Mexican economy, inflation, our own interest rates and our own peso. So, you know, it is going to be a challenge for the new central banker and for Hacienda to handle that. Yes, definitely. No, inflation is, is an issue right now. The average of inflation for the last 20, 25 years has been close to 4%. The target is 3%. And that has been in the context of very uh, technical, orthodox uh, central bankers, as Tony was mentioning. And so you need to be really consistent with the message in order to anchor inflation expectations. And for that, you need to be credible. And if you are not credible, you will create this de-anchoring of expectations that could create some sort of a spiral in terms of what happens with prices. Minimum wage have been increasing significantly double-digit adjustments, which is fine, I guess, to a certain point, given that in many years before the, the Peña Nieto administration, they remained very close to the uh, 3% inflation, which prevented an adjustment in wages, but at the same time allowed for an orderly adjustment in prices. Right now, you need that because in the end, if you do not allow orderly adjustments, you can have a very uh, unwelcome adjustment in prices that in the end affect the real wage income. And that is what people do, do not want in the long term. Gabriel, according to the IMF, Mexico's economy will not arrive at pre-pandemic levels until 2023. Many economists recommended an increase in stimulus to help businesses cope with the worst of the lockdowns. At the same time, Mexico is one of the countries in the region with the lowest debt to GDP ratios. Is there any room for Mexico right now to increase debt? Yes, that's a, an interesting point, because at some point during the worst point of the pandemic, we forecast that GDP was going to be rising closer to 60%, which is an important threshold when you are thinking on whether Mexico is going to lose the investment grade or not, which is some sort of the Premier League for a sovereign debt, no? in the sense that you really want to remain below 60% for, for, for long, and at the same time, under 50% if you really want to allure investors into Mexico, portfolio investors, and FDI investors, given that Mexico started to flirt with levels above 50%, we start to be worried at some point and, and thought that Mexico was going to lose investment grade at the end of this year or even 2022. Right now, it's not the case. The fact that Mexico is recovering fast on the back of the U.S. performance stimulus in the U.S. remittances, as was also pointed earlier in the conversation, that allowed Mexico to rebound relatively strong this year, probably closer to 7%. That's something that still looks uh, strong. I don't want some extremely optimistic about that, but it's only the recovery. You are not coming back to pre-pandemic levels this year anyway. You uh, still needed to rebound more than 8.2% in order to be only at below pre-pandemic levels. So the fact that we are going to uh, recover close to 7%, but interest rates are going to be on the rise and potential growth is probably falling below 2% precisely because investment is not picking up that will create or exert some pressure on debt dynamics in the medium term. So we are watching things carefully, precisely because in the medium term, all of these risks on institutions, on growth and potential growth, investment and the likes are going to start uh, exerting some pressure. And that is something that might just increase debt a little bit. But right now we are comfortable and in the message that it will remain relatively stable at around 50, 52% of, of GDP. A few days ago, AMLO met with a Mexican businessman and he tried to reset the relationship. 
Rhetoric notwithstanding, it is clear that there will be no growth without investment and that there will be no investment without certainty. Are you at all optimistic about this AMLO relationship, new relationship with business? Will he no longer renegade on contract? Will he no longer change the rules of the game? Or are we going to see more of the same going forward? I don't anticipate any dramatic change in tone or direction. And that's why I think that around investment, what you're likely to see is the long-planned and anticipated investment, expansion of the manufacturing platforms related to export. But certainly, if you look at a sector like energy, where a lot of the anticipated investment and some of the early investment, you know, immediately in the wake of the reform, I think you saw a lot of activity. There's been a real pause on energy and, and a real concern about that. So I don't know that in terms of, I guess the analysts use that direction of travel expression. I don't see it uh, changing marketably. Now, I, I think there's some real opportunities going forward, but it would require a, a slight pivot and a more of a North American vision uh, around the USMCA and I think more of a strategic partnership between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. But whether or not Lopez Obrador sees himself as part of a strategic partnership in North America or the more traditional Mexican nationalist, you know, there's there's a big gulf between those two visions and whether or not he can move away from his long and I think very heartfelt ideological positions on a number of issues, I think is an open question, but I, I, I don't see it as, as terribly likely today. Gabriel, do you think AMLO will become more or less pragmatic as he faces this new reality? Let me just remind the audience that one of the first things he did right after the election was talk about a new electricity reform that would increase transmission costs for generators. As the ambassador mentioned, North American competitiveness and having abundant, reliable, cheap and clean energy will be crucial for Mexico to be attractive in the medium and long terms. Unfortunately, Pemex and CFE, as we know, are incapable of achieving these goals. How do you see this unfolding? Yeah, I think that the key word on this discussion is competition. Uh, it's also productivity, and, and those issues will continue to linger in the discussion in Congress and what happens with the, the different comments of the president and the morning pressers where policy making takes place uh, almost on a daily basis. And, and I think that that is relevant uh, to understand the tweak in the conversations and the tweak in the comments from the president that sounds more welcoming to investment. I think that's a good signal. We have to, to pay that attention to that. But we We've been there before. No, we, we've heard a lot of comments in that front. We've heard a lot of comments on the infrastructure plan, on uh, different issues related to the medium-term actions from the government, and and those steps have been going on very slow. Let's see. I mean, I mean, probably I'm a little bit more optimistic as well when we think about Ramirez de la O and the fact that he apparently gonna, is going to be more involved in in developing bank issues, which is something that we are still waiting to see. We haven't heard much about that. We've seen also a lot of changes in the leadership of the developing banks in Mexico, and we haven't heard a, like a clear-cut strategy for the medium term. So probably 
This might be part of these public-private partnerships that we continue to hear a lot, but we haven't seen much. But I think that that bodes well in this, this discussion. Oh, I, I wish, of course, that yesterday's conversation with the business leader is going to be more uh, positive. But also, if we now think a little bit more about the, your question on energy, that remains still quite concerning from the perspective of what we ha had before about these changes to the electricity bill and the fact that that is flirting with the idea that still both Pemex and the CFE will continue to be the priority, not necessarily making them more efficient, but it is uh, whatever it takes, we will maintain a strong dominance of this market precisely because of the interest of Pemex on CFE. No, uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an open question. It does, it's not very clear. I think that it's still part of this while the dust settles, we will hear a lot of comments uh, in this transition before the ordinary session that starts on September, September the 1st. Apparently, we will not have extraordinary session that usually runs in the, in, the, in the summer. But yeah, I mean, important topic. And I still think that the, for this government, energy is uh, the key sector to, to, to keep in mind. Ambassador, was there any wisdom to the Deer Park at acquisition? Well, I mean, I see it in the context of Mexico either trying to increase their refining capacity or access to refined products. It's hard to imagine that a sovereign, in my mind, and you might not surprise you as a Texan, that a that a sovereign or a parastatal can run that operation any better than Shell. And so I, I think that the challenges might be initially in, in simply the operations. But it was it was interesting. It might also suggest that the refinery projects in Mexico are behind schedule and over budget. And so I think you've got to you've got to take that sort of reality into account too. So there may have been some political wisdom in it, I, I suppose. But the economics of it, I think, are at best still to be determined. Gabriel, where did the money come from? And will these priorities affect government finances and Mexico in the long run? Well, the government mentioned that the resources used for Deer Park were part of those uh, adjustments made to the public trusts. No? So maybe the, the, the question is what is going to happen to the public trusts in the future and whether that, that is going to constrain the possibilities for redistribution of resources in the medium term. I think that that is concerning uh, precisely because there is an inefficient allocation of resources on many grounds right now. And one of, of, of these is precisely just reallocating resources originally allocated for technology, education, science. Uh, and, and health, and then using those resources for the energy sector, which again goes back to the original question and the original topic of the priorities of the government, which of course still uh, suggests that going forward we will continue to hear these kind of actions. But of course, the, the external debt of Pemex is not negligible. It's something that continues to be a priority to understand. There is not a thorough fiscal reform that pairs well with a, a reform on, on Pemex and the CFE, which still has an important tax burden. But that's not the only issue on, on Pemex and CFE. So adding to these concerns, the fact that you will have to deal with that new refinery, which of course in the past used to be quite efficient and very productive, the only one that was uh, profitable as compared to the rest of the refineries, suggests that probably they really want to show that they can produce enough gasoline to satisfy the needs for the domestic market. But it's a big challenge because we will now learn how capable Pemex is to work on its, on, its, on its own. And one of the main criticisms is that there's not a single private company that really wants to do uh, or to take all the risk. No, <laughs> you want to share risks. You don't want to, 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 to absorb all of those concerning dynamics. And uh, well, I think that Pemex is really facing an important test for the next few years. Let me ask you both the same last question. 
What are the risks that concern you the most? And are you optimistic or pessimistic about Mexico? I think most of the risks are, are short and intermediate term. When I talk to people generally outside of Mexico, I, I would say, are far more bullish on the country than people within Mexico. So I, I think Mexico continues to be attractive longer term. It's got an attractive demographic and proximity, a very healthy resource base. And I think over time, you're going to see North America, because you're not seeing a lot of new trade agreements, and you are seeing a, a bit sort of thing, the, the sense of bringing things closer to home, being Canada, the United States, and Mexico. So I, I think uh, longer term, I remain very optimistic about Mexico, very bullish. And what we're, tr what we're transitioning through now are, are, you know, policy zigzags that have been uh, less attractive to investment. But I will close my comments where I started. This past week's election was a very strong signal about Mexico's democracy and their ability to correct. And I think that suggests a resilience that the Mexican people have long been known for is still there. Gabriel? I mostly agree with, uh, uh, with Tony in terms of the importance of last Sunday's election, in terms of the participation, in terms of the uh, increase in the number of women as, as governors. So I think that's a very important point as well. The fact that we continue to hear about participation of the youth population and composition of the demographics in Mexico, also as mentioned by, by, by Ambassador. And I think that is relevant in the context of, of, of improving dynamics in consumption. I think that still the, the main concern is investment. And, but that is something that given this pressure from the society in terms of what is needed on the country is very relevant. We have the umbrella related to the USMCA that's always been, uh, well, not always been there, of course, but since 1994 has provided a lot of certainty for uh, global companies. And that is something that continues to allow to uh, some sectors of FDI to remain resilient. But exactly that is what we need just to extend the, the diversification and the diversification of, of, of investment in Mexico, which in the end might allow Mexico to witness a structural change in terms of uh, investment and growth. Now, right now, I think we are in some sort of an impasse. We need to understand what happens with, with institutions. If the new appointments in the economic team deliver on that front, I think that we are up for a very interesting second half of the mandate of López Obrador. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. But I would like to close on that more optimistic long-term views about Mexico, just emphasizing what Gabriel mentioned about currently being in an impasse where a lot of things will be decided and probably creating a pretty bumpy short and medium-term outlooks. I would like to thank the ambassador and Gabriel for such an interesting conversation. I am Mariana Campero. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.